You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Verse of the week downstairs, I'm told from Miss Julie, is that if you want to see God, you should look at Jesus. Isn't that a good word? The kids downstairs are learning right now that if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus is perfect theology. He's, he's God with skin on. And we're in a, a, a journey right now. We're almost done with it. It's been pretty quick. We started like four weeks ago uh, called Read Scripture. And the whole process was to move through the unified story that points to Jesus and look for Jesus everywhere we could find him in every single page, whether it's the, the prophets or whether it's the poetry books or the Torah or the history books. We've, we've made our way to the Gospels. And so today is uh, the Disney world of the road trip. Like you're in the car and you're driving somewhere and the scripture's taking you somewhere. And where it's taking you is where we are today. It's taking you to the Gospels. Every story from Genesis until now is pointing. It's pointing. It's a roadmap towards the Messiah, Jesus. Uh, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And even, even next week, when we talk about Acts and the letters, it'll be a sign that points backwards towards what we're going to uh, be looking at today. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, open up to Luke um, chapter 4. And uh, uh, when, I was, um, when I was 16, uh, in the year 2000, so you guys are doing some quick math there, um, my youth group went to um, a project called Cabrini Green in Chicago. Um, I found out just by my mother's facial expression what Cabrini Green was all, all about. Like her eyebrows went up. She was like, Cabrini Green, Chicago? No longer exists. They tore it down in like 2011. Um, but it became kind of like uh, a pseudonym for, for the slums, the, the worst parts of the city, the poorest places of, of the city. And so um, it was built in like 1942 with this grand vision to be a beautiful place, to be a replacement for... Uh, other slums, it was like a high-rise thing, and the idea was, it was in the north side of Chicago, you could get everybody there and kind of uh, offer welfare and, and assistance living and stuff like that, and, and of course it didn't go, didn't go well. In, in the 1970s, there was actually two police officers that were shot, uh, snipered from one of the buildings, and uh, it kind of drew national attention, uh, so much so that even the mayor of Chicago at that time, I forget the lady's name, moved into the apartments for two weeks uh, and actually had to move out because she... She, uh, she couldn't um, kind of find the, uh, the, the direction and the, and the ability to, to, to sort of see the, the, the Cabrini Green grow into what it was supposed to be. And so I'm 16 years old, and we go into it, and uh, I, I'm kind of bright-eyed and new to the gospel and new to Jesus and excited to change the world. And um, I showed up into that world, and there was a lot of things I saw over the course of that week that I'd never seen before. Um, there were uh, just drug needles everywhere. There's um, just garbage and trash, and you would, you would go into... Uh, the building, and there'd be these different smells. I mean, the smell of just urine, and the smell of vomit, and the smell of just uh, dr- trash and garbage. I mean, there's, there's situations, I remember the guy was telling us that uh, next door to this one apartment was this other apartment, when they found out that the guy wasn't living there for a long period of time, they didn't tell the tenant, but they just started storing trash right next door to where they lived, into this little apartment, and there's rats, and, and mice, and disease, and things that happened, and you would look at the little kids, and I mean, you're just looking at them, and, and, and there's just no way they're going to make it, right? Like, they're running around naked, and nobody's watching out for them, and there's police, and there's, and there's drug dealers on every single corner, and they're 14 years old and 15 years old, and there's an entire even gang ownership, like there's gang kind of maps somewhere drawn up that, you know, even the police know about, but there's really nothing you can do about it, where the gangs have dr- drawn circles around the different tenement buildings and which ones they owned, and, and who knows, like any given week, who's going to get shot and who's going to get killed next. I was kind of uh, introduced to, to the projects, to the ghetto through Cabrini Green, and uh, I think the biggest conclusion that I had to take away from that, you know, I think the assumption is going into that when I'm, when I'm young is that, you know, you just, just go get a job. Just, like, get out of there. Like, it's the worst place in the world. Like, why don't you just get out? You know, there's, what, I don't know, 15,000 people that live in these apartments. And uh, I think it was, like, 3,600 little rooms. And 15,000 people, I mean, they're born there, but they live there and then they die there. Some of them not beyond the age of 18 to 21. I mean, you look around, there's no male figures, no father figures whatsoever. And the pregnancy rate is just, is just awful and STDs and so forth in this place. And you think, it's like, who would stay there? Who would live there? And, uh, and as, I, as I looked and talked to people, I realized that people thought and talked and acted and, and grew up in different places and environments that, I, that I'd been in. I realized that Cabrini Green, although it didn't have any like physical, tangible walls, like was a prison. Cabrini Green was a place, a prison that, that, that had real like the Bible would call it defilement in the land. Like when you wake up and you just see drug needles outside every single day when you're, when you're three and four and five years, that doesn't not, not make an effect on you, right? 
And when you, when you see like uh, the, the, the intimidation factor of the gang members on the street, like with the different, um, uh, different colors on and the different guns and the weapons and the stories that go along with each of those characters, that's, that forms a sense of fear in you that's probably stronger than walls and stronger than you know, political values. Like this is, this is what we're talking about. It's, it's, it's invisible walls that form this prison. And, and then, of course, even in that, the biggest problem is, is the lack of, of male role models, the lack of fatherhood and the inability to see something better than this, to see beyond it. And so, I mean, you could go four or five miles left, right, east, south, north, or west and find, find freedom, find something better than that, something that represents the future, but yet people, the 15,000 people that began to, you know, that continued to live and die and do their life there couldn't see anything more than that because even though Cabrini-Green didn't have walls, it still was a prison. And so um, the Old Testament's important. We skip the Old Testament um, because I think somewhere, somewhere along the line told us like, the Old Testament isn't, isn't what we live in anymore. We don't live under the Old Covenant, so we don't read the, read the Old Testament. Or even sometimes, dangerously, people will say, well, God's not the same anymore. As though the God of the Old Testament isn't yesterday, today. You know, like there's this either inference or belief or false, like this idea that God's not the same. And so the Old Testament is just all the stuff that all the smart people, you know, read for us that just tell us to start reading in Matthew. You know, but like the Old Testament's there for a reason. And the Old Testament is there to, to, to help us see who Jesus is. The whole Testament is there is to point us towards Jesus. And the Old Testament is making a very important claim, and this is why we should read the Old Testament as much as we understand it. I know that it can be outside of the way that we literally like, interpret information, and it can be um, a, a little bit heavy sometimes. But the Old Testament makes a very important claim. And, and the Old Testament is making this claim is that evil, evil is not just a problem, it's a prison. The claim of the Old Testament, if you start in Genesis and go all the way through Malachi... It is an ongoing social experiment for more than 15,000 people. It's making an important claim. Evil is not just a problem, it's a kingdom. Evil is a kingdom that is presented as a snake from Genesis 3. It's presented as, as, um, as a creature that wants to crawl into the door of your heart. He's knocking at your heart, wants to rule over you. Evil is, a, is an empire, a system of, of Egypt and Babylon and Rome and Assyria. Evil's not pa- evil is very active. Evil is a kingdom and evil is a prison. And so what you're seeing with 75% of the Bible, if we don't read it, is just thousands and thousands of people of testimonies that are showing us, they're showing us that evil is not just around us, evil is above us, it rules over us. If we are, if we are human and disconnected from God, if we have turned like, like our, our brother's brother's brother, father's father's Adam, if we've turned, then evil is above us as a prison, evil is around us as a wall, evil is inside of us and within us. And we don't just need a friend in Jesus, we need a deliverer. So this is why this is important. When you get into Matthew, like this is all about how to read scripture, right? And how are you supposed to read scripture? And the way you sit down and what you anticipate, the minute you sit down at seven o'clock to open the Bible matters. It will greatly impact what you're looking for. It impacts what you find. And the Jews, in reading all the Old Testament, they have one word. And we don't even, I don't think we have really a great American word for this, but we need to know this word and learn this word. And, And the word that the Jews come to by the time they read through Malachi is the word Messiah. When, the, when you go through Genesis and Malachi and you read all the way through the prophets and the history and all the, the repetitive testimonies, there's, there's one cry that a, Jew, that a human, whether it's in Cabrini Green or in Israel or in America, is looking for, and that is the cry of, of a Messiah, the Messiah that can deliver. Evil is not just a problem, it's a prison. Evil is above us, around us, and inside us. And we don't just need a friend or a little pep talk or a coach or a guru or a Yoda. We need a Messiah. We need a rescuer. We need a, we need a savior. Do you see? And so that's the problem. When you sit down, you know, Ricky Bobby, when he sits down at Christmas, he says, oh, brother, thank you for a six-pound, eight-inch baby Jesus. You just warm my cuddly heart and give me a devotion to just get me. No, 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 no. We're in a prison of evil. We need a Messiah. The reason why we sit down and read the Gospels is not to look for a friend or how to heal somebody. It's because we need a Messiah. We need somebody that can break the evil above us. The gang members, whoever they are, political leaders, unjust rulers, the, the, the parents and the, and the authorities that we've had before that have given us false authority and hypocritical authority and bad understanding of what kingdom is and what the garden is, we need a Messiah to save us from that. We need a Messiah. We don't need a counselor that just tells us a couple things we should work on, a couple people we should forgive. No, we need somebody to take our sin as a great high priest in the, in the order of Melchizedek who lives forever perfectly and that can intercede on our behalf competently that prays the right prayers and the prayers that work that would cleanse us before the Lord, not just help us feel better about ourselves. We need a Messiah. That's why we read this thing. 
We don't read this thing to, to, to get a, whiz, a wise word of how to run a business and how to get happy, you know, wealthy and wise. We need a Messiah. We need, we need somebody to confront. This is what the Jews understand. Evil is not just a, a problem philosophically. It's gone away. You guys know that the barrel of the gun, we've killed more people in the last hundred years in our great scientific understanding and our humanitarian hearts and how well we want to change the world and we see all the history books and know exactly. You know we've spilled more blood in the last hundred years than all the thousands of years before it? And so the problem of evil is not just a, it's not a math problem to be solved. It's not, you know, like that's what it's telling us. It's showing us countless and thousands and thousands of lives from all different places. It's not a problem, it's a prison. And we might not live in a, we might like live in a ghetto, but we live, we live in the kingdom of evil. And so it's not a matter of, um, will I choose a little bit of Jesus or a little bit of this kingdom? Or the, it's like, either I live in the kingdom of heaven, repent and believe good news, or I live in the kingdom of evil, which one? So let's do a quick assessment. So if you're not here, this is just a review. So basically the Old Testament, the way the Jews divided it, wasn't four different sections. It was really just three. They called the law, the history, and the prophets. Everybody say law. Everybody say history. Everybody say prophets. The theme of law is covenant. Everybody say covenant. All right, so uh, the theme of the law, the law is not just 613 laws. Jesus says, I come to fulfill the law. He means the Torah, the whole thing. Like he's the fulfillment of everything, of Abraham and the snake and, and the whole story. He's like, all of the problems that were generated and created and proposed and claimed by that book, I'm the solution, is what he's saying. And as you read through it, you realize that evil's a prison because it wasn't that they didn't know the rules, it was that they were unable unabil- in, to follow the rules. They, they, they had uh, what, what the Apostle Paul would call an uncircumcised heart. They had a hard heart that was unable in, in to follow the Torah law. There really only is one law, and we talked about this last time, uh, is that to love your neighbor. And all the other 613 laws are added and added and added to try and create this covenant with Abraham that they could, or with, yeah, with Abraham and the Jews that they could not fulfill. And so we end uh, the book of um, Deuteronomy kind of with this promise that says that there will come a day when a new covenant will come, a Messiah will come, this one will come, and they will not just put greater laws around the person, they will transform the heart from the inside out. This is the Messiah we're waiting for. We're waiting for the Messiah that can change the heart. We're waiting for the Messiah that's not here to add extra rules or give us extra guidance, but the one that can, that can uh, give us his spirit, his life-giving presence that we can have a circumcised heart from the inside out. The second book is called the history books. Everybody say kingdom. The theme of of history is the kingdom. And that is, uh, you could put it this way, uh, because the the Jews and you and I uh, have have a um, broken relationship with God, uh, because we do not fulfill the commandment and because we do not fulfill the covenant and because uh, he pursues us, but we are faithless to pursue him, because we do not have a relationship, we fail to represent him. So as a review, you guys will be reading through anything, you know, past the book of Joshua all the way to the prophets. You're just seeing king after king after king after king get idols in his heart and therefore ruin the land and defile the land. And the book is very clear. The reason why there's defilement in the land, there's drug needles in the land and why there's pornography on your phone and why there's, um, why there's injustice in your family and in your schools. The reason why is not because we don't have the right plan. It's because we don't have a relationship and then fail to represent him. And so the history books present an upside-down crown. They present an empty throne that no human could sit on. And they wait for the covenant that was promised through David that a seed would come that would establish the kingdom, not just for Israel, but for the nations, and not just for a short time until he died, but for eternity. The last book is called The Prophets, and the, and the theme of the prophets is judgment. The idea here is that the prophets are looking back on this story and they're realizing that evil is not just a problem to get solved. It is a prison and it's above us and around us and inside of us and that we would need somebody to come and, uh, and bring a, a judgment to clear out the evil and wickedness of our world and ourselves and above us and around us so that we might be made into a new Jerusalem where uh, there's no need of a son and that the, the people of God, the priests that would gather around this new king in the line of David would live in the city forever and that the garden would be reestablished. All right, so we're going to get into the scripture, but I want to read a couple of um, uh, Old Testament scriptures just to get us going before we get into Luke. In Genesis 2, it says this, it says, by the seventh day, this is the creation story, by the seventh day, uh, the Bible says, God had finished the work he had been doing so that on the seventh day he rested from his work. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because it is, uh, he rested from all the work he had created uh, and all the things that he had done. When we think of Sabbath, we can't think of vacation, we need to think of kingdom. 
Sabbath is not because God is tired. Uh, Sabbath is because God is done working. So when you think of the word Sabbath, and it'll appear a couple of times is why I'm bringing it up, you're thinking of kingdom. We think of kingdom in terms of pomp and circumstance. Some guy who uh, is, you know, talks with the stip of her lip and speaks with the king's English and all this kind of stuff and kind of bosses people around in a scepter. God doesn't need a scepter. He doesn't need a throne. He doesn't need a crown. He created a garden. And so the, the commands of, of the kingdom of heaven is let us and let there be. When, when, when a king says let us and let there be, there's this idea that, you know, the creation wants to do what it says. There's no disalignment. There's no incongruency. There's no disagreement between God and his creation. So he just got done with six days of doing stuff and then calling it good. And then on the seventh day, it says he rested and he sits back on his throne and he watches this thing. This is what kingdom looks like. Kingdom looks like a garden. Kingdom looks like a garden. And so from Genesis 3, as we turn the page, that's Genesis 2. What we need to understand is that when, when the humans rebelled against God, they didn't just rebel against their created, they rebelled against the king. They, they, they fomented a rebellion. They hosted a coup. They rebelled and they began to create their own kingdom. And so uh, Adam, you know, um, or excuse me, um, Cain uh, kills Abel, which is the first page of the Bible. We see murder and injustice, and that goes on. So Cain builds a city, and he sings this song about how he uh, is a great warlord, and he has all these women around him, and he's like, I have all these women, and I killed everybody, and they uh, all answer to me because I'm a big tough guy, right? And that all continues until the, uh, the, the building of Babylon, where the people said, we're going to make a building in our name, and we're going to build it up to the sky and get to heaven on our own and build our own glory in our own kingdom. And so then the, the kingdom of Babel is created. And so what we're supposed to see is these two contrast kingdoms, these two contrast kingdoms. Now, this is where, where, where it all kind of crescendos into Exodus 1. And I want you to see the contrast between Genesis 1 and Exodus 1. Heavenly kingdom and human kingdom. If you have it, uh, Exodus 1, it says this. It says, when a new king, this is the Pharaoh, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies. Fight against us and leave the country. When God sat on his throne, he wasn't looking at a ghetto. He was looking at a garden. He was looking at things that wanted to grow that were thriving on their own. He was looking at men and women who were created to multiply on the earth, not because they were suppressed, but because they were empowered. He was looking at not hierarchies of, of power where I'm fighting against my enemies and watching out around my back because somebody, if I don't kill that person, they might kill me back. He was looking at agreement and harmony and Sabbath. And so this is the two pictures that we, could, we should think about when we think about this most important, I mean, what's it, 30, 50 times in the book of Matthew, in the 28 chapters of Matthew, Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. When he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, he is not talking about pomp and circumstance, a crown, a guy with a scepter, and a red robe. And he's not talking about Princess Diana. He's talking about the garden of heaven. He's talking about a place where instead of fear, there's trust. He's talking about, he's talking about parents who govern their children seeing uh, who they are despite what they're doing. He's talking about parents who, uh, instead of taking their kid out back every time their kid does something bad and, and telling them, oh boy, I'll tell you, told you so, you better listen to your mama and smack them over the head so they get an A. He's talking about agreement. You see the difference? He's talking about um, a, a place where, where families live in submissive love. He's talking about Ephesians 5, where husbands, instead of like lording over their wives and bossing them around and telling them to stay in the kitchen and so forth, want to lay their life down for their wife. This is what he's talking about. He's talking about children that, that trust their parents, that, that don't speak back to them and, and call out their little idiosyncrasies and can't wait for them to get something wrong so they can point out why they don't have to listen to them. He's talking about agreement. He's talking about a let us, not you better. He's not talking about enemies where, where it's like, I'm going to use um, leverage and uh, I'm going to use power plays and triangulation to get what I want in politics and in the workplace so I can get better than you and I better watch out and keep my job against you and so forth. He's talking about, he's talking about cooperation and harmony and kingdom. And so this is the two kingdoms that you have right next to each other. You have the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of man that's represented in Egypt. And we're, and we're, putting, we're, we're caught between these two tensions. And so the Jews, they, 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 they imagined this future Messiah. And the Messiah had to play these three distinct roles that are enumerated by, illuminated by these three different sections. This Messiah, if they were to come on the scene, they would have to fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies. And they would have to be a king that's greater than David. They would have to be a king. Um, excuse me, I'm down here on the history books. They would have to be a king that would meditate on the law day and night. 
And they would have to be able to cast out idols so that they would worship God and God alone and find victory in the land. That they would be able to remove evil and they would be able to imply and apply justice in the land, no matter where it was, Cabrini Green or in Greenville. They'd have to be a better king than David. They'd have to be a better priest than Israel. Israel was supposed to be a nation of priests, but they needed a priest. And so he would have to be a priest that would be able to cleanse the heart from the inside out. They'd have to be a greater priest than, than Israel, a greater king than David, and a greater prophet than Moses or any of the other prophets. All right, so that's the, that's the setup. Here he is, Luke 4. This is where you are. Luke 4, 14, it says this. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogue, and everyone praised him. You're going to see in the Gospels, you're going to see three different responses to Jesus. You're going to see people that recognize him for who he is, for the Messiah that he is. You're going to see people like John the Baptist who were on the fence. Are you the Messiah? Is someone else coming? Should we be waiting for someone else? There's people that are on the fence. And then there's people that are ardently know, that call him a blasphemer, that call him a son of the devil, that, that ultimately bring him to crucifixion. And so right off the bat, the story is pulling you in because it's like one of those reaction videos on YouTube. You know, those are real famous right now. They'll play a video and they'll like, you'll watch it a hundred thousand times to watch this one guy react about some crossover where this guy breaks his ankles in the NBA or something like that. You know, like, like reaction video. You, you identify with that reactor because it helps you see how would I have reacted. So the Gospels are written with that in mind, not just with Jesus as the main character, but with these responses. And what you're supposed to do is go home on Monday morning if you go read the Gospels and you're supposed to ask, what would I have done? How would I have responded if I was in that crowd? That's a great kind of reading question as you go through. So this is the first response we see. He was teaching in their synagogue, says, everyone praise him. Well, maybe not for long. There's people that respond positively in the beginning and then maybe neutral and then maybe negative, but that's at least the first impression. Verse 16, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, and he, uh, which was his custom. He stood up and he read the scroll of prophet Isaiah and he handed him over to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. So royalty is not uh, a crown. Royalty is not a... Um, is, is not royalty, it's, it's, it's authority, it's anointing. It's that the Holy Spirit fell on Jesus when he was baptized. It's that when he went up to the mountain of transfiguration, God called him my beloved son. So it's not where is the throne, it's where is the anointing. So he says, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners. All of the Egypt stuff that's talking about, the, the, the systems and elaborate nature of gang violence and... and, and, um, and uh, balance of power that happens globally and locally and even in our relationships, like all that stuff that's established there, it acts as a prison. It acts as the things that keep you and me enslaved uh, to, to, to the prison of sin without Messiah Jesus. And so he's saying, I'm coming to bring a new kind of a kingdom. I'm going to bring a kingdom that brings us back to Genesis. I've come to bring good news to the poor, and he has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, the ones that Egypt has ruled over and has um, enslaved and 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 and, and and called into debt and so forth. He says, I'm going to give recovery of sight to the blind and, and set the oppressed free of him. Come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So when I, was, um, uh, when I was young, I mean, I don't know if some of you guys are younger than me and you don't remember Princess Diana, but Princess Diana, uh, she, was a, um, she was a bull in a china shop, man. She was real small and real petite, but she would just call out that crown. Do you guys remember that? She would be on um, television and even though there was a, a British uh, royalty, like somebody obviously that's, in, in, the, um, in, in the royal family, um, you know, she would have this kind of dignity and poise about her that she was like the, the, the people's queen. And people would kind of listen to her. And she'd call people out. She used to be a teacher, and she'd just be saying the hypocrisy that was going on um, in, in, in Britain. And so um, as time went on, you know, you really saw that that authority, even though it was um, vested in the crown politically, that socially that the authority really shifted towards her and fig figures like her over in, in that monarchical system over in the UK in the 90s. And so when we see Jesus rolling up scrolls, when we see Jesus sitting on mountains, every place that Jesus is, is a throne, is, is a crown. It's a place where there's authority. And so Jesus is declaring, if you notice, all three of these offices that we've talked about so far, he's declaring that he is a greater Israel, he's declaring he's a greater David, and that he's a greater Moses. He is saying that I am come to set the captives free, right? So David, what was his problem? David and his kingdom was always sent to idolatry. And because they did not seek the Lord and because they did not obey the covenant and they sought after other gods, God handed them over into their enemies. And that was the problem with the land. The problem was not that they didn't have enough weapons. The problem was not that they didn't have enough strategy. The problem was that they had too much idolatry. And so David uh, could never sit on the throne 
uh, in perpetuity. He, 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 his throne was, it was empty for Jesus to sit on. And so he's declaring that he's going to clear out the land. He's saying that he is going to uh, set the prisoners free. He's going to set hearts free. He's going to not just give more laws for people to uh, abide by, but he's going to open up the prisons of sin and death and chaos that rules in our heart, and he's going to set the captives free. He's going to allow people to see that people are going to see the difference between right and wrong for the first time. And they're going to, uh, instead of their eyes, you know, being widened like the garden, their eyes are going to be set to be shown by the Lord. What is the difference between right and wrong? Through actual prophecy, not false prophets, but real prophets. So Jesus is saying he's bringing all these things. Now, here's how they respond. Watch the response. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, hear you. Uh, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do not do in your hometown what you have um, done in Capernaum. And he says, truly, I tell you, listen, no prophet except, is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there will be many widows in Israel in Elijah's town time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land. So what's he saying? In a sense, he's saying, not only am I king, but you've never had a real king. He's saying, the plan for rescue and deliverance was always intact in the promise. The I will promise from the beginning of Abraham is that I am providing for you. I'm going to provide for you a blessing. I'm going to provide for you land that will clear out your enemies. I'm going to provide you a way forward to be fruitful and to multiply. But he says there's never been a king and there's never been a prophet that's been able to hold the throne. He's saying that there was uh, seven years of famine. The greatest prophet that, uh, that the Jews ever had, Elijah, or one of the greatest prophets ever, Elijah, could not even prevent the land from becoming defiled so that it become a famine place. And then he goes on to say, verse 26, yet Elijah was uh, not sent to any of them, but a widow in Zarephath in the region of, of Sidon. So God can use anybody that he wants to, and he's going to use who's ever available. And so he's going to use this widow instead of Elijah, because even the prophets are not able to fully step into the deliverer role, into that Messiah role. They're people in need of a, of a Messiah. Verse 27, and there were many in Israel with leprosy, and this was a great test point that uh, Jesus heals lepers, but there's many with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman and Syrian. And so Jesus is basically telling his people, not only am I the Messiah, but you've never seen a Messiah. And he's saying, he's saying that the last time I checked, none of these people in all of their accounts, more than 30,000 people, could establish the kingdom of heaven. None of them could heal. None of them could heal the heart. None of them could heal the land. And nobody could confront the unseen enemies. There is a perpetual problem here. He is showing us and showing them that evil is not just a problem, it's a prison, and that there is no deliverer, there is no Messiah that can come. And so Jesus rolls up the scroll and he says, all of these prophecies, they point to me. You're either going to find them in me or nowhere else. You can look back at all the prophets, all the kings, all the stories, all, the, all of the, uh, the priests, the Levites, none of them, none of them can bring the Messiah, none of them can bring the deliverance that I'm about to bring. Here's the response. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is why Jesus always talks about parables of soil and seeds. Because what he's just done, if we paid attention, and by the way, that's another reading tip, is it's great when you go through the Gospels and find the little Old Testament references and refer back. Because those, those hyperlinks within the website of the Bible are telling you he is the answer to every problem, every unfinished business thing that's in the Old Testament. And so reading those Old Testament things, you'll see exactly how authoritative and how true Jesus really was in his statement that all the laws pointed to him. But those hyperlinks, those connections, those fulfilled prophecies uh, should have softened their heart to repent. Ironically, they do the exact opposite. Because evil is not just above, around, but it's inside, that the, the prophecies actually cause them to be more hard in their heart and become more blind. So um, a while ago, uh, me and my wife, we settled down and got the good old Honda Odyssey, the, um, the minivan, man. We're fully in the kingdom of the suburban life. And, um, have you, and so it's just, a, my Kyra calls it a living room on wheels. There's just a full Nintendo 64 in there. I mean, the kids never want to get out. It's like a tour bus, you know, for John Mayer or something in there. And they're riding around. It's just awesome. And so... Um, and so, but, but I remember when we first started looking at Honda Odysseys, like if you notice the car that you're looking for, you always see because the car that you just got, you're like watching for it. And everywhere you look, you can see it's Honda Odyssey. It's like that color, that color, the LX, the DX or whatever. And that teaches us something about seeing, right? Because seeing is, is not, the Bible says we're not just seeing with our optics. We're seeing with our heart. And the Bible is saying we're not just seeing what we're seeing. We're seeing what we want to see. That's the deal. It's like, it's like he's showing them, if you Bible nerded this whole passage out in Luke chapter four and looked at every single line. I mean, his line was like 
somebody that just sat down and poured over the pages of Scripture, some guy with a divinity, master's you know, in divinity or PhD or whatever, could have written that speech out and not done as good a job as he did. He just went back and hyperlinked all of the Old Testament Scriptures that are pointing to the problem of evil and why there has been no Messiah, and then delivers it, sits down, fulfills it in himself, and then walks down the hill and proceeds to heal all these lepers and deaf people. And yet, they, instead of receiving him, they, they reject him because people see what they want to see. So what's he showing? It's not the problem of, of, the, of the observation. It's not the problem of the, uh, of the supply of the Messiah. It's the problem of the reception. It's the problem of the heart. It's the problem of they don't see it because they don't want to see it. They don't see it because they're not looking for it. And I wonder what that tells us about the way we read our scriptures and the way that we would approach the red letters in the scriptures. And so there's these, these three uh, responses. All right. And so Jesus is going to fulfill, and this is really what I want to do on this outline here, is walk through the different pieces of the identity of Jesus as he fulfills the Old Testament scripture. The very first thing that uh, he does is he begins his ministry where he calls a few disciples. But in Matthew chapter 5, it says he sits down, he sees the crowds on the mountainside, and he sits down and he begins to teach his disciples. In our human understanding, we think of kings as tellers, not teachers. Kings say you should do things because you should do them. You shouldn't question kings. You shouldn't ask kings why they're doing what they're doing. Kings are the boss, and so they wave the scepter, and and things happen. This is the way that kings operate. But the heart of the Torah, the one that prophesies about the real king, the actual king that's greater than David, is not just a teller. He's a teacher. In Deuteronomy, uh, I'm I'm forgetting the the chapter. I think it's 19. Um, It says, verse 18, when he takes the throne of his kingdom, this is, again, one of these hyperlinks, all these pages, these people, Jesus says, you search the scriptures to find me, but yet you don't see me when I'm right in front of you, not because of your eyes, but because of your heart. He says, when he takes the throne of the kingdom, this is how you're going to know Jesus. This is how you will know Jesus. He is going to sit down, and he's not going to be a teller. You ought to go do this. He's going to be a teacher. He's going to write for himself a scroll, the copy of the law taken from the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he's to read it all the days of his life. He's like the wise tree who meditates in the law day and night. He's not only reading the law, he is the law. He walks at the law, and he can fulfill the law in himself and fulfill the law in himself. This is how we can, in others, this is how we can identify the king. He's a teacher. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn the reverence of the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of the law and these decrees and do not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he is... Uh, his descendants will reign a long time in the kingdom of Israel. I remember um, uh, Mark Beeson, this guy I, I talked to you guys about um, in this uh, section over here in the history books. Uh, my pastor growing up of Granger Community Church, there's, you know, uh, 10,000 people at this church. And so um, it was interesting because I was friends with his son, Aaron. And so I would kind of get to see what he was like, you know, like not just on the pulpit, but in the living room as well. And, of course, the best leaders, you know, the greatest ones, it's like they're going to act a certain way on the pulpit, but they're even better in the living room because they're just awesome and they actually love people and you see what they can actually do when they can stop for the one as opposed to, you know, doing something, you know, on a stage. And so um, I remember this one time, uh, it was during the summer, and I think I was probably um, 17, so Aaron was probably 21. So Aaron's in college. And uh, we're hanging out at some bonfire, and the plan is we're just going to go um, over to this girl's house that's in the group, um, because she's having kind of like a, a stay-the-night party over at the house. Like, it's a movie night and all this stuff, and it's probably like five guys and five girls, and they're probably like 20 to 25, okay? Well, Aaron, you know, like, is living on his own, but he's calling his dad because he's checking in. And uh, I remember he called his dad, and the dad right away told him he couldn't do it. And I remember Aaron, as a pastor's kid, there's that struggle, right? Because, like, am I getting told not to do this because I'm the pastor's kid or because you love me? It's like always that tension for the pastor's kid. And I remember this, and it just struck me as a young guy, especially because I'm looking at Mark, and I'm looking at him being a great pastor, and I'm thinking about how he's being a dad and so forth. And Mark sat him down and talked to him for like 45 minutes. And you could hear like the tenderness and the love through the phone. There wasn't like a, who's your daddy? You better do this. But there was a teacher heart. And he was talking to him, like talking him through you know, what does this look like? You know, like, how, how, how is the reputation? How are you leading other people as you do this? And, like, what's the long-term residual outcome of you making decisions like this? And, like, what's that girl going to think? And is there a girl that likes you? And how is that going to affect if you stay over there? Are you leading her in the wrong position? Like, like, he's teaching him the law. This is so different, right, from what we're used to in terms of the big boss. The big boss, he runs a tight ship. He runs a clean horse. You know, he's got everybody coming and going. Nobody gives him the what for. It's like that. He's like, like the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament is teaching us. Like the kings are not tellers, they're teachers. And they're going to call you, on, on, you know, call you beside them 
And look, it's not even that you're trying to define and defend that you're the law and like impress and oppose the law down on somebody else. It says he comes up under the law, he fulfills the law along with you, and he teaches, he teaches. And this is what the king looks like. It's not a scepter, it's not a crown, it's not pomp and circumstance, it's not a fancy office with, with you know, a suit. It's like any mountain Jesus sits on is a throne. It's the throne with the authority of God. This is how he teaches us. He would teach us this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they are the ones who are going to be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For the same way they persecuted the prophets before you, they will persecute you. So this is where you are, right? This is the question. This is the question. It's not... Does the words of Jesus make you feel good when we read them? The question must be, is Jesus the king that is more righteous than David? David, at the end of the day, could recite the Torah and tell people to follow the Torah. But David did not have the Torah in his heart when he approached Bathsheba. And every king is an empty throne for God. Every king falls and therefore leads defilement in the land. And Jesus is coming to say, I'm a Messiah, and you've never seen one before. You have not seen the Messiah, so much so that you can't even recognize him when he shows up, when he sits right in front of you because he doesn't have the right clothes on. But he proves to us, he is. He's the Messiah. So this is the question on Monday morning when you go and read the Gospels. Is that your king? Is that the wise teacher? Is there another world? Is there another wisdom? Is there another teaching that can give you something else or something more than blessed are the poor? Because if it's not, then he's not your Messiah. He is showing us that the way of the kingdom is not impressive uh, optics. It's not uh, force and control. It is, it is the wise teacher that sits down that can not only tell you to follow the law, but teach you the law. But to, 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 to demonstrate the heart of, of, of the garden of, the, of, of Genesis 1, which is written all over the blessing. This is what he's saying is the blessing. When Abraham says, you're going to be a blessed nation and uh, blessed are you to be a blessed, you know, you are blessed to be a blessing to the nation. This is the kind of blessing that Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about a new car. He's not talking about uh, a, a greater bottom line or a better retirement. And so is he, is he the teacher or is there another teacher? Is there another world? All right, Jesus comes down the mountain in verse... Um, uh, chapter 8, I think it is, or maybe, no, chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus stepped into the boat, crossed over, and came to the town. Some men brought him uh, a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, your son, your son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts? Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, get up and walk, which is easier to say. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go. Then the man got up and went home. Then the crowd say to him, said to him, they were filled with awe. Or when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. And they praised God uh, who had given such authority to man. So another reaction video right there at the end of the verse. All right. So um, uh, when I was a kid, I was thinking about this um, as I was preparing for, for, for today. When I was a kid, um, I ran into a couple judgmental people. You, you meet a couple judgmental. You know, know anybody judgmental? You know anybody like this? When you're by them, you're, you're just thinking, they are thinking something about me. I don't know, but they are summing me up. I don't know what they're thinking, right? So it doesn't take long. You'd be six or 60 or whatever. There's people that are judging you. So I wouldn't have been able to tell you this when I was young, but I think I made in my decision maker, like when I was very young, I'm just going to go ahead and just steer clear of judgmental people. That'll be really great. Isn't that a nice thing? Just, I'll just say no and just be like, you know what? I do not participate in all this. I'm going to be in the judgment-free zone. I'm going to be judgment-free. I'm not hanging out with the judges. And so um, I hung out with a bunch of nice people, and that was a great choice. Hanging out with nice people is a lot more fun than hanging out with judgmental people. But here's what I realized, that people can be nice and judgmental at the same time, and nice doesn't always mean forgiving. So forgiveness in the human sense, but especially in the kingdom sense, is not a feeling. It's a debt paid. Forgiveness is legal. So the illusion is, well, I don't like being judged. Jesus came to stop judging people, right? He said, don't judge people. So going to the kingdom is just going to hang out with nicer people. That's not what Jesus, Jesus didn't come to make God nice. He came to fulfill judgment on our behalf. So forgiveness is not a feeling, it's a debt paid. It's a debt paid. So I met this other guy, it was at a church. I'm talking to him. How's your family? What's your family background? Blah, blah, blah. He's talking about his brother. I have this one brother. I get along with this guy, but I don't talk to my other brother. You don't talk to your brother? Don't talk to my brother. How long are you talking to him? 
I talked to him in six years. You haven't talked to your brother in six years? Yeah, man, I haven't talked to him. So I'm ready to go into ministry mode. I'm like, all right, like, why is that? Let, let's talk through that. Uh, he goes, yeah, um, this one summer, man, he really made me mad, and I, and I never talked to him again. Um, so it turns out we went to the lake, and uh, he's like all about my jet ski, and he wanted to use my jet ski. And I was like, oh, okay. And, and he's like, yeah, so I, I borrowed the jet ski, and, uh, or he borrowed the jet ski. He said he kind of took it out for uh, an hour or so, and then, uh, and then he broke the jet ski. And I was like, I'm like waiting for him to finish the story. He's like, yeah, can you believe that? The thing was 5,000 bucks. I haven't talked to him in six years. I'm just thinking, you, like, did he run over your sister with it? Like, what? <laughs> no, 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 5,000 bucks. Like, when we come into little cul-de-sacs like that in the human heart, like, that's how much Jesus is worth to him, right? What does it cost you to live in unforgiveness? That's the price of Jesus. And so Jesus is coming. The reason why they're so up in arms is because they understand by the law. I mean, Americans, we don't understand it because we live in a relative judgment-free zone or whatever. But sins don't just get forgiven, they get paid for. They don't just get forgotten and they kind of waft off into the air. And that's the way we think about sin. You know, it's been a long time and like comparatively, I'm better than that person. That's where real judgment comes in because I'm nicer than them and they're not nice and they're judgmental and so forth. And so sin becomes this like, you know, ambiguous category of things that like, well, once they kind of wear off and you forget about them, people stop talking about they don't exist. But the Jews believed this was blasphemy. Like if you're saying that somebody's sin is forgiven, you better have something to pay for it. He's like, I'm the priest. I'm the great high priest that's going to give an offering. I'm the, I'm the one who's going to live forever, and, I, and I'll never die, and I'll be the perfect priest on your behalf. So that's the question. Is Jesus the perfect priest? Number one, is he a perfect king? Is he a king better than David? Is he a priest better than Israel? Can he give you an offering? And if you, if you learn to forgive yourself, are you forgiving yourself because of your feelings or because there's been a debt paid? That's a big difference. The way you treat people on the other side of that decision and that question as the scriptures confront you, in the sins of your life, in the brokenness, in the folly, and the abuse, and the, and the transgressions that you make against everybody else every single one of your days of your life, do you know they're there? Do you count them? Do you count them as a prison? Are you ready to solve them on your own? Are you going to go to a counselor or psychologist to get over them? Or do you need a priest? Do you need a high priest? A priest that can offer you something uh, that, that, that is forever, and that is eternal, and that is perfect. Lastly, Jesus asks, as, acts as the prophet. Verse 13, when it it was almost time for the Jewish Passover. Jesus went to Jerusalem in the temple courts to poke the bear, basically. He found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the table exchanging money. He made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and the overturned tables. To those who were sold, uh, sold doves, he says, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. The disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. They replied, it has taken us 46 years to build the temple and you are going to raise it up in three days. A yes, a no, and a maybe. Jesus came as the perfect prophet. He came as the sinless prophet and the righteous prophet, the one who could truly correct uh, Jerusalem and not only um, correct it and rebuke it, but restore it into its, its rightful place. He's come to turn over the ta tables, which means he is going to tear the temple down. But what's he say? He's going to build it back up again. Um, third story uh, that I thought of, of the prophet gift. Um, I interviewed for a job uh, before City Lights um, to go work at a big church in uh, Atlanta. And I sat down with the executive pastor. His name is Scott. He probably made a ton of money, but he drove a, a Camry and uh, had like 200,000 miles on it. He took me to like Jersey Mike's uh, and we're hanging out. And uh, he's telling us the story of this church. And it's a great church, right? It's like the worship leader stuff and the pastors, the preachers and all the programs is just killing it. And he's talking to me um, and he's telling me the story. And it's not him because he's obviously super meek and humble. And he's talking to everybody and he knows all the strangers and praying for people while we're sitting here trying to have this lunch. But I realized that Scott, although there's a lot of preachers on stage, Scott, is, is a major engine of this church. Because here's what I realized. Churches that grow on into health and, and, and into fulfillment of mission, mission and alignment, they don't get there without a few fights. And uh, the reason why big churches and healthy churches, healthy big churches, because sometimes big churches aren't healthy, but for sure, healthy big churches, the reason why churches go on and, and produce health and produce fruit is not that they haven't had tensions and conflict inside, it's that they've navigated them well. And that somewhere along the line, there's a Scott. This is what I walk away from the lunch. Any church that has health, it's because they had a Scott. And here's what a Scott is. A Scott is humble. A Scott is right, like righteous and, and acts rightly. A, a Scott does not accept bribes. He does not play favorites. And Scott will stand for right things in the midst of wrong things. And when, it's not if, but when, when the trouble and when the wind and, and, the, and the wolves and all the things come to attack the church, this Scott, and I'm just using his name, 
is the one will stand against it with a kind and gentle rebuke. That's what happens. That's how churches you know, grow and, and stay healthy, is that there's somebody. Because what happens is that if there's a church split, the two sides go off. And basically, neither of them are really right. Nobody's right. It's wrong, it's wrong versus wrong. And so then you have the sheep, the people in the church, like you and me. We're just sitting there looking at it, and it's like wrong or wrong or gone, right? And most people pick gone, and that's how churches blow up because there isn't somebody that can bring the righteous prophecy. There's not somebody that can come in and say, this is right, and this is how we should do it, with a tender heart that wants to teach, with a forgiving heart that wants to preach, with the one that, that can bring the righteous prophecy. And so this is what Jesus is doing. There's been no prophet that can speak to the king and, and turn over the tables because there's been no righteous prophet. The righteous prophet cries for the city. The righteous prophet longs for repentance. The righteous prophet isn't self-righteous and puffy and wanting to you know, be the wolf disguised in sheep's clothing that it says in Matthew chapter 7 that comes to hurt people and, and take from people. The, the righteous prophet would die for the message, to die for the gospel, and isn't susceptible to bribery. Is there a healthy prophet? And so that's the question. Are you your own prophet? Can you hear God on your own? Do you know the difference between right and wrong without him? Or do we need a prophet to turn over the hearts to the tables in our heart? Do we need a Messiah prophet? And so all three of these things combine to be, to be the identity of Jesus. And they ask us this question, is he the Messiah? Is he the chosen one to fulfill the need for the, uh, the covenant, to, to have our, our hearts renewed, to, to, to fill the seat of David that he left empty, to rebuke Jerusalem and, and, and call it to turn over and to become the righteous city that it was meant to be for the nations? All of this begins to create a lot of clamor. If you notice, when you read through the pages of, of the scriptures, Jesus caused a lot of drama. You notice this? Everywhere he goes, it's like he just can't cause, not cause problems. And it's not just the Pharisees. The little Diablos get going too, don't they? Everywhere he walks, oh, oh, there's just paranormal activity. There's a disturbance in the force, is the way that the Star Wars geeks talk about it. Because it's, it's not just the problem of evil, it's the prison of evil. It's the powers and the principalities that begin to emerge. But it wasn't just the Jews that killed Jesus, right? It was a Roman cross. It was the empire. It was Egypt. It was Babylon. It was Assyria. It's like it doesn't really matter. Because the, the nations had been handed over to the world because they wanted the world. And so they were exiled and banished into the world. And so there's a triumvirate is what they call it in politics. A three-legged stool that has come to attack Jesus. And this is an important question, and I want to bring it to you today. Get a little bit theological, but it matters because it infers on the character of God. The question that we need to look at when we read the ending chapters of the Scripture is who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? We're going to read a story about Barabbas here in a second to close things up, but who killed him? I mean, I killed him in my flesh, right? Like, I chose against him, and I repeated Adam's sin. I mean, I'm not smarter than Adam, and I continue to fall for Adam's trap. And so... The flesh killed Jesus, the one who does against the will of God, the one who rebels. But I conspired with my neighbors, and I created systems of oppression and injustice, and even if there was supposed to be one that would turn, there was always a world out there. Like, I was on Instagram the other day, and I saw a nice house with a pool and a yard, and I'm thinking, am I even living right now? Like, why am I not living in this house? I have this minivan with this Sega Genesis in it. Why do I not have a pool? I mean, it, ne it never gets old. Like, you'll always have the world. The world's always calling to you, Right? And that's why Jesus says, I have to die to overcome the world. And even if you were to resist the world and, and resist the flesh, there's that tempter in the desert who keeps lying to you, who, who erases somehow all the faithfulness of God and only confronts you with your failure and your sin. And so we're helpless. Like, we need a Messiah. This is it, right? Like, this is, it's not just one little mistake or one little, like, paradigm that I need to get preached out of me. It's the powers and the principalities. So who killed Jesus? There's a, there's a great movie, Narnia. Have you seen this? Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Who killed Jesus? Who killed Aslan in Narnia? The White Witch. I love this. This is a t teaching environment. There's a, man, there's a man across the sea. That's God. And the man's nowhere to be found in that little narrative, right? So there's theologies that you need to, to think about. It's not as simple, right? So we go to youth group, and, and, and the message is penal substitutionary atonement. God's mad at you. And so he killed Jesus instead of you. So who killed Jesus? God killed Jesus. It was his pleasure to kill his son on our behalf, right? But Narnia helps us understand as well. He calls it the deeper magic. The deeper magic is when Edmund rebels against the king, he creates tyranny, he creates rebellion. And so he doesn't only owe God, he owes the white witch. The white witch owns him, right? The, what is the, the penalty of sin is what? Death. Who wants death? 
The white witch, right? I come that no one will perish. So here's what happens. If you only have, and they call it Christus Victor or ransom theory versus penal substitutionary atonement. If you only have the angry God, the sinners in the hands of angry God, and the only person that killed Jesus is God, and the powers and the principalities had nothing to do with it, then you have, for God so hated the world that he killed his only son, rather than so God loved the world that he, that he gave his only son. We need to know that. We need to understand like, and read through. So I don't have a lot of time, but I'm going I'm to read, I, I got to read this passage. It's in Matthew 27. It'll be the last one that I do. Just read this, read this trial, and I want you to listen to it and, and, and reflect on the different players in the game here. Where, what, what is happening in terms of bringing about this narrative at the end of Matthew 27? Now, is the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner named Barabbas. In the NIV, it says Jesus Barabbas, the son of man versus the son of God. So it's these two people. He represents Israel, and he's put on trial against the innocent Jesus, the fully guilty, guilty Barabbas. Barabbas owes the law because he sinned in the flesh. Barabbas owes Rome because he's a freedom fighter, and he killed some of the soldiers. And Barabbas owes the devil because he has sinned, and the penalty of sin is death. And so he's a man in debt next to the man who's debtless, next to the innocent one, the Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. It says, for he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. Handed over. Remember this in, in the prophets? What does God do to the sinful, idolatrous nations when they, when they sin against him? How does he judge them? He hands them over. So there has to be this balance that, that wrath of God, which is a cup described in the Old Testament and in Romans 1, the wrath of God, represents three handing overs. So, so the wrath of God is this. The wrath of God is we are, we are sinful and so deserve punishment by God. But it also means the wrath of God is him handing us over to the nations. And we became prisoners of the nations in exile, in Jerusalem, or in, in Egypt, and, and in Babylon, and in Assyria. And so here's what's happening. They're taking that same word in verse 18. He knew it was out of self-interest that they, that, that they, the people, had handed Jesus over. So what's happened? Instead of us being handed over to the nations, we handed Jesus over to the nations. We needed a Messiah to break out of the kingdom. He broke our sin, but he also broke the empire. He, he broke the power in the principalities. And so instead of the Father allowing us to be handed over to the nations, he handed Jesus over to the nations on our behalf. We handed Jesus over in this trial while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat. Who's on the judge's seat? Who's the judge? Who's the one that's going to make the decision? You're going to see them try to you know, deflect responsibility. This is what this whole story is about. Pilate is sitting on the judge's seat at the beginning, but his wife says to him, don't do anything to this innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today because of a dream that I just had about him. So he's, he's skeptical. Verse 20, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crown to ask uh, for Barabbas to have Jesus executed. Which of these two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they said. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is the Messiah? Pilate asked. They, call, they all answered him, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Says Pilate. They all shouted louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, uh, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. So he says, I'm innocent. It's back to you. And he says, it's your responsibility. Look what, he said, look what they say in verse 25. This is unbelievable that the scripture is like this. All the people answered, let his bud be on us and our children. <laughs> they're trying to defend themselves by declaring that they're innocent, calling him guilty. He's the innocent one. They're the guilty one. So he takes the cup instead of them. And so the last night he's with the disciples. You remember this with the communion? He says this. He says, I want you to eat my body. This is my body that's broken for you. And then he says what? I want you to drink my cup. Well, in Isaiah in Jerusalem, we already know what the cup is, the bitter cup. It's the cup that comes to kill. It's a cup of wrath. It's to be punished by God and exiled into the nations. But what's he saying? I drank your cup so you could drink mine. I drank your punishment in the nations and in the powers, and in the principalities, and into eternity, so you can drink mine. It's not that God so hated the, the world that he killed his only son. It's that God loved the world that he gave his only son. And if our, if our atonement theology doesn't understand that there's multiple players, that is the powers and the principalities that, that tempted us, and that we abided in by rebelling against King Jesus, that we drank that Turkish delight, and we are rebellious, and we do deserve death, but he deserves that no one would perish. And he wants all the captives set free. And that's why Jesus said, I am a servant. And I have come to ransom many. What is a ransom? It's a payment to, to rescue back the kidnapped, to rescue back the Barabbases and the Edmonds 
and the Greenvillians and anyone else that would call on his name, that we were imprisoned by sin. We don't just have a problem of sin. We are imprisoned by sin. And Jesus came to lay his life down for many, that he would ransom many, that we would drink his cup instead of ours. And St. Augustine says, this was the greatest poker trick of all time. You know how to play poker. You got a bluff, right? And so the enemy over, over, over bets his hand. And so St. Augustine says it this way, the, double, the devil jumped for joy when Christ died. And by the very death of Christ, the devil was overcome. He took it. Uh, he took, as it were, the bait in the mousetrap. He rejoiced at the death, thinking himself death's commander. But that which caused his joy dangled the bait before him. The Lord's cross was the devil's mousetrap, the bait which caught him, and the death of the Lord. He thought by crucifying Jesus, he was going to put death to the kingdom, but instead he accidentally put death to death. He put, he, he put his plan of, 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 of of killing, just like the, the, the beast from the beginning of time, killing the firstborn sons of all the Egyptians to kill the firstborn son of God. And he thought it would work just like every other one, but he messed with the wrong one because he was sinless and he overcame the grave and he raised on the third day and he put death to death. And this is where we can live in this place of the one who took our cup so we could drink his. And so um, that's, this is what Colossians says about the gospel. Colossians 2, when you were dead in your sins and uh, uncircumcised in your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us for all of our sins as a priest. So he's, he's the one who circumcised our heart. He's the one that forgave us and cleansed us uh, as, as the perfect priest in the order of Melchizedek, having canceled the charge of the legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. And then he took it away, nailing it to the cross, having disarmed the powers, the authorities, and made a public spectacle of them. He made a mockery of them, triumphing over them in the cross. All right. So uh, I've run out of time, but this is the, the closing um, question. I'll have uh, Timothy, you would come up and we would, um, we would just close this worship this morning. But I, I want to ask you the question this morning before we go. Um, and it's the question that the scriptures will ask us. We are in the crowd and we're watching this. We're in the crowd that sees Jesus crucified. We're in the crowd of the great teacher that sits down and like David and can teach and fulfill the prophecy. We're in the crowd watching the, um, the one-third of all the successful uh, uh, lepers healed in our presence, right? We're watching this, and we have to make a verdict. We have to make a decision. Not is he a nice guy. Not is he, is he kind. Not can he pull off a couple miracles, but is he the Messiah? And so if the answer is yes, then the scriptures are telling us this morning that everything is yes and amen in Jesus. And he has fulfilled all of the prophetic needs in the prison of evil that comes above us and below us and around us and inside of us. And it's saying that if Jesus is your Messiah, and if you trust him, then follow him. That the flesh can offer you, and you owe nothing to the flesh. This is what Messiah Jesus is saying. If you, if you read this thing, and if the soul of your heart is open, if your eyes of your heart are open, you will see him for who he is. And there's no other king that compares to him. There's no other king that can deliver you. You are not a prophet. You need a prophet. You need a perfect prophet. You need a messianic, messianic prophet. And that prophet needs to speak to your flesh. It can't just be a better word of wisdom. It can't just be even, it can't be a sermon or even just a Bible reading per self. It has to be his spirit, his prophetic spirit that speaks into your heart even right now and declares you owe nothing and you can offer nothing to this thing. This thing is dead and dying. Are you your own teacher? Is there wisdom in the world? If Jesus is your Messiah, uh, this world can offer you nothing and you owe it nothing. You're, you owe nothing to your job. You, know, uh, you, know, you owe nothing to consumer culture. You owe nothing. You owe nothing to your finances and even your debt. You owe nothing to your financial debt. You owe nothing spiritually. You have everything in Jesus and nothing can be given or taken away. If you're in Messiah Jesus, if you are in the kingdom of God, if you live in his reign and rule, then you know you owe nothing to that dark world. Demons shudder at his name. You owe nothing to him. And he will come to you in the deserts of life, in the midnight hour, and he's going to tell you, you owe me. Remember what you did? You owe me. And I can offer you the kings of the, of the, of the world. Come and stand up on this mountain. Command this bread to turn into, or stone to turn into bread. And Jesus came and he died and he says, you owe him nothing. And he can offer you nothing. This is the kingdom of heaven now that we live in to repent and to believe the good news if you're, a may, if you're a yes, I want to continue to, to, to encourage you to follow him. If you're a maybe, if you're on the fence, I want to encourage you to trust him. Just take your next step to believe it and, 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 to, and to trust with your, your money and your finances and your home and your time to trust and see 
if he's not a greater king than Pharaoh. See if he's not a greater king than this world has to offer. Trust him, take a step. And if you're a maybe, this would be, this would be the invitation that the scripture would say is to turn towards him. Because every one of these kings, every single one of them is a prison. Every single one of these idols is a prison. And whether we've read the Old Testament or haven't read the Old Testament or if this is the first time we've ever considered it, these things are tyrannical dictators and they come to kill babies and they come to rule over there, uh, the oppressed and the poor, and they come to fight wars and extract taxes and extract hearts and extract spiritual life and vitality and they come to kill and kill and kill and kill and kill and it's a prison and we need a Messiah. And so I invite you to stand and whatever your response is, I would just love to worship in this moment with that kind of a revelation. If you have eyes to see this, you are part of a narrow road and you are part of a kingdom family and there is great power in faith. The Bible says that, uh, that Peter was able to stand on the Mount of Transfiguration. He said, listen, other people, Lord, they call you Elijah, they call you the prophet, but I know who you are. I know you're the Messiah. And if you look at those red letters and you look at that king and you can identify that suffering servant, then you have much to be grateful for. He has overcome the powers and the principalities of Rome, this world, and Satan. Um, I'm gonna pass it over to Tom and we're just gonna do some prayer time this morning. But in any way, I just invite you to respond to the, the kingdom of heaven that is, that is offered to us freely. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.